Welcome to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. In this episode of the Dyad Podcast, we're going to explore who joins fraternities and sororities, why they join, and how they join. It is important to note at the outset of this episode, recruitment is a topic that varies a lot between different types of fraternities and sororities, particularly between historically white groups and culturally based groups. And while we're going to touch on all the groups a bit in this episode, we're going to focus primarily on IFC fraternities and the way that they recruit new members. Let's start with what we know about who joins. Members of historically white fraternities tend to come from more affluent backgrounds than non-members. Historically, they have been more involved in extracurricular activities in high school, particularly varsity sports. They drank more alcohol in high school. They are more culturally and politically conservative than non-members. They tend to have lower levels of moral judgment compared to those who don't join fraternities and sororities. So, to summarize, the known research suggests that college students who joined fraternities could best be described as wealthy Republican kids who played sports and partied a lot in high school. And despite the fact that they probably did some service work or went on a mission trip, still have measure lower on measures of moral development compared to kids who didn't have those experiences. Got it? That doesn't sound too great. Here's the thing. My guess is that things have actually gotten worse in the last few years, but these recent changes, specifically those since 2017, aren't necessarily showing up in all the research, although it's beginning to show up in some of ours. Here's my general theory on how things are going right now. Increased negative media attention in the wake of hazing deaths has resulted in campus crackdowns and a general negative perception of fraternities and sororities among incoming students and their parents, especially as we've seen a transition from the millennials into the post-millennials. And the thing that we know about post-millennials is that they drank a lot less in high school and they're coming to college much less motivated by the social aspects of fraternities and sororities. Yet those who still choose to join are joining because of those social aspects. And those students who have historically been attracted to leadership and involvement aspects of fraternity and sorority are less likely to join now because of all the negative media attention, the campus crackdowns, and the bad headlines. As a result, Chapters today are made up more and more of those members who prioritize only the social aspects of membership. Now, this isn't just me theorizing. We've actually seen this data play out, particularly in our sisterhood data. Over the last four years, we've seen a huge spike in the social prioritization of sisterhood. Sorority members care a lot more about the social aspects of sisterhood. And I don't think that's because the students who are joining care more about the party. My theory is that there are less and less students joining sororities who are attracted to the more altruistic aspects of the sorority experience, things like leadership and involvement and community service. So we see a higher percentage of women who only care about the social experience and a lower percentage of women who are attracted to other aspects of sorority. And the reason that I think we haven't seen this trend in our fraternity data is because this sea change in fraternities happened years ago, before we started collecting this information. 
So on the whole, my theory is that we see a much larger percentage of students in fraternities and sororities motivated by the social aspect. And as a result, we've seen spikes in a lot of problematic behavior related to a negative social culture. The other reason we know that this is happening is because of who is paying for the fraternity and sorority experience. One of the questions that we ask on our standard survey is who pays your dues? And generally, there are three options. Do you pay your dues yourself? Do your parents pay your dues? Or is it some combination of the two, that your parents pay a certain portion and you pay the remainder? Here's what we see in that data. On any given campus, where would you assume that the demographics between men and women on that campus are roughly the same, we see a much higher percentage of sorority members report that their parents pay all of their dues for them. On a recent campus project, for example, 60% of sorority members said that their parents paid all of their dues compared with just under 30% of fraternity members. Now, what does that tell you? It tells me that parents of fraternity members are much less supportive of the experience and as a result, much less willing to help pay those dues. That's a big problem, especially if you're trying to build a fraternity or sorority experience that is different from the stereotypical fraternity and sorority experience. An experience that isn't just about the party, but is about something much more meaningful. That's why I wanted to talk to Brian Warren, the CEO of Sigma Phi Epsilon. As many of our listeners know, SIGEP, through their Balanced Man program, is probably the fraternity that has done the most to try and upend the traditional narrative about fraternities and offer an experience that's truly different. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Brian. We cover a lot of ground, and I'm really excited to welcome him to the podcast. Brian, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad you're here. So folks know we were preparing to present at NASPA uh, on the, the topic of recruitment and some of the research that we've done through our partnership about style of recruitment and, and how that impacts some chapter-related outcomes. NASPA is canceled. Uh, I would have been flying to Austin today or tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow, Friday. So uh, we're not in Austin. I'm in Knoxville. You're in Richmond. But we're going we're gonna to have this conversation anyway. <laughs> I'm glad we could get together. I'll be yeah. here remotely. The, the, the downtime has created a lot of uh, opportunity for me to explore some creative areas I've been thinking about, including the podcast, which I don't think I told you. Josh has suggested that we call it Pod Save Fraternity. I don't think we're going to go down that road, but it's a, an interesting thought. Um, so we've, we've got this data right, and, and we're digging into recruitment style and how that impacts chapter culture. Before we get into the specifics of that, give people a, a context. I've studied, and, and you and I have talked a lot before about the Balanced Man program, um, but it really, is, it really is a different kind of experience, and, and, it, and I think a different way of thinking about what a fraternity is and ought to be. So, so start out just by walking us through what is the Balanced Man experience? Why was it created? What kind of experience are you all trying to create for your members through this thing you call the Balanced Man program? Sure. I think this is a great place to start. Uh, for, for those that study, study history, having the, the perspective and understanding that history sometimes repeats itself, uh, we're seeing a lot of similarity today 
relative to what we did in the what we saw in the late 80s when the balanced man program then project was being conceptualized so that at that point in time we were entering into a strategic plan and we were looking at some of the issues that we wanted to address at that time and in no particular order limited involvement of older members in the chapter uh, poor self-esteem among members, poor community involvement among members, few quality peer role models or older role mo models in the chapter, limited campus involvements, poor focus on leadership practices, goal setting, mentoring, mutual respect, and limited use or a poor understanding of our ritual. And I think you see a lot of that stuff or a version of it today and we're just dealing with it in a more uh, technologically advanced and just different time in higher education. And so that, that, that was what we were trying to address. We, we ended up rolling it out in the, in the mid 90s and really didn't, we didn't achieve total alignment across the organization until 2015. There's and, a, and, and what does total alignment look like? Like, what is what is the balanced man program? What is a balanced man chapter? Yeah, so there's the the program itself is uh, it, the the packaging and delivering of it of it has evolved over time, but it's really founded on five tenets. Uh, one is equal rights and responsibilities for all members. So read that as no pledging, no hazing, elimination of two tiered membership based on seniority and the other four are continuous development mentoring living our ritual and accountability and that that has remained consistent across the the life of of the program and and early on we you know we had test sites we we tried this at at dartmouth uh as our, our the first place that that we went to to try and implement this and see the change and we had a gradual implementation effort starting in the early 90s all the way to, to 2015, where ultimately it was adopted, or a piece of legislation was adopted by our undergraduates. And they said, look, we, we got we to do this across the board. We need to have a single model for, for our fraternity. And early on, we, we studied the, the results of this. We, we looked back at the things we were trying to address. We partnered with George Mason in the, the study for the Center for the Advancement of Public Health. Uh, we, we conducted a study then, uh, I think in 96 and 97, submitted that to the Department of Education and received a quarter million dollar FIPSI grant so that we could expand the reach of the program to more more campuses and begin challenging the way that fraternity was done across the country. And over time, we, you know, we, we learned a lot. Uh, we, we pivoted a little bit, but it was in 2015 following, I think, a, a series of really challenging years for us in the larger fraternity system that we got total alignment. And, and really that was done, I, I think, for, for two, two big reasons. One was, when you just looked at the 
BMP chapters and non-BMP chapters, you, you saw some really obvious discrepancies in, in outcomes. And we said, look, one is clearly better than the other from a student development standpoint. Why would we continue to support or even tolerate an inferior model? It's in the best interest of our students. What were, what were some of those discrepancies? You know, as you look, you went through this lengthy kind of implementation period as you were bringing chapters on board, what were the differences that you all were seeing between the partnered and the non-partnered chapters during that, during that period? Well, we saw uh, things based on, on risk. Uh, so there were more incidents in your, in your pledge model chapters. Uh, we saw lower retention in our pledge model chapters. And even though the initial recruitment numbers may have been higher, retention just wasn't there. And for us, we looked at that as synonymous with value. Yep. And we want young men to graduate at SIG, in SIGEP, uh, as SIGEPs, because that means that there's an opportunity for them to be volunteers and really stay true to that lifetime commitment of brotherhood that we talk about in our organization. So we, we looked at risk, we looked at GPA and other learning outcomes. Um, we looked at involvement on campus. We looked at involvement in the fraternity and you know, whether or not these groups were winning awards within SIGEP and on their campus. And really, when you, when you looked at any variable, the groups that were running the Balanced Man program were outperforming those that were not embracing the Balanced Man program. And, and I mentioned we looked at this in two ways. The other way was looking at this from purely a, a business model and, and looking at this from efficiencies we were servicing two different types of chapters mm -hmm. and servicing one, knowing that it was not performing as well as the other. Mm -hmm. And so what are the opportunities as an organization, as a business to say, look, we're only going to service the high performing model. We're going to stop allocating resources to this group that is riskier, that isn't performing as well academically that isn't as engaged on campus that isn't leading the change that we want to see and we redirected all of those resources to implementing the balance man program across the board how much of that pushback you know that 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 led to y'all having to delay implementation over time how much of that came from undergraduates versus alumni because i know you all got a lot of resistance from alumni of those chapters who did not want to change who wanted a traditional pledging model you know, I even think about our first interactions professionally were when I was the director at Alabama. My first year there, we closed the SIGEP chapter for hazing, particularly an egregious case of hazing. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we're bringing the chapter back. We want to bring it back as a balanced man chapter. And there was a lot of resistance from the alumni. And, and, and I was floored by your all's decision to say, you know what? If the alumni aren't on board, we're going to go find other people to work with and advise this chapter. And you found staff and other folks on campus, who, many of whom weren't even SIGET members, to, to support that chapter. And that chapter became a model chapter. I, you know, certainly at Alabama, I, I, don't, I can't speak for how it stands out in the world of SIGET, but compared to what it had been before and compared to other chapters there, uh, it was just a vastly different organization. And and, and, and obviously the alumni played a big role in the perpetuation of the culture in that chapter. And I don't want to throw blame around, but just generally speaking, how much were the alumni part of that resistance versus the undergraduate leaders? 
Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we have, I think, especially a decade ago and, and, and even today, we have a lot of people in the organization that love the fraternity. And they, they, they spend time with the fraternity to support the fraternity and its members. And sometimes their actions are, are driven by misconceptions. And I, and I think that we were dealing with a lot of that, uh, you know, especially 10 years ago, we were dealing with a lot of that. A lot of people who love the fraternity, love their chapter, love their alma mater, uh, but were misguided based on inaccurate information or misconception of, of the program sure. and what it was intended to, to do. And we have had to invest a lot of time communicating better with our alumni about what the program is and what it isn't, how it came to be. And really, we, we took a lot of best practices from what were pledge model chapters at the time uh, that were probably more so BMP chapters than they were pledge model chapters, but we took a lot of those best practices and we packaged it with some, with some additional problem solving. And that's how the program came to be. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it, it, there was, it was all based on collaboration with chapters, not you know, what came from the ivory tower in, in Richmond, Virginia. Um, but to, to, the other, to the other point, I think this also, it underscores how important people are in, in an organization, both undergraduate and, and volunteer. And I know we're gonna talk about the undergraduate side, but the volunteer side is also critical to the success of this program. And, and it's critical to the success of recruitment as, as well, because, and we say this often in our world, volunteers are the continuity year to year. We see a lot of turnover in undergraduates every year, every four years. Volunteers can be the continuity. And when our staff isn't there, when university administration isn't there, our volunteers are often the, the daily source of guidance and mentoring for our undergraduates. And we realized that we had to spend a lot more time communicating with and educating our alumni on what the program is and, and what, it, what it isn't. And, and as we got better at that, I received now zero pushback on this BMP thing doesn't work. You know, it's just a different world. And, you know, that said, we've got a, we've got a fantastic communication team. And they, they, we're continuing to spend a lot of time on this. Did you, did you lose people initially who have now seen, hey, this really is a better way and have, have become reengaged and have gotten back on board? Yes, a lot. Awesome. A lot of naysayers are now uh, evangelists. The proof is in the pudding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it is. You see a great chapter and you're like, ah, yep, I see it now. Chapter is way better. I'm proud of this. That's awesome. And it's, it's amazing to me that you all have seen, and I wouldn't even say anecdotally, I mean, gathering qualitative research vis-a-vis -vis chapter visits and observations, you know, there's a lot of good information that can be gleaned from that. But during that transition period, you were seeing a lot of the things that we now see in, in our research that, you know, that, one of the most common defenses of hazing is that, oh, well, you go through this hard experience and it builds commitment and people are going to be retained at higher levels and they're going to be more committed. And that's not what we see at all, that the chapters with, you know, the highest levels of hazing tolerance have low levels of commitment. They're, they're low levels of engagement. You come in, you're hazed. As a sophomore, you live in the house and you haze the new members. And then most people after sophomore year kind of like, 
yeah, that's not really my thing. That's kind of messed up. And they totally disengage. They totally disconnect. You all were seeing this 15 yeah. years before anyone was really studying it. And, and the data suggests that, that, that you were right in the way you were interpreting what you were seeing, that, that the, the, the problematic behavior that for whatever reason, alumni and other people want to hang their hat on, that that was so core and central to the experience really has nothing to do with the meaningful type of experience we're trying to create that really emphasizes a place of belonging and, and, and brothers holding one another accountable. Uh, in fact, that, you know, the data might even suggest that those things are just opposed to one another. And it, it's just, it's fascinating to me that you all were probably the first group, maybe not to see it, but certainly the first group to try and do something about it in as drastic a fashion as you did. Yeah, uh, I think you nailed it. We first acknowledged that there's a problem. And if you just look at the numbers, grade point average wasn't consistently above the all-campus average. Re retention wasn't anywhere close to where it should be. Uh, number of incidents, risk, relationship with the insurance provider wasn't where it should be. And, and the general perception of the academic side of the aisle on college campuses was telling us, you are not who you say you are. <laughs> you, you are not considered to be the intellectual-minded group that your values would say you are. You're, you're not a place where we want to send our students or recommend that they go when they're not in my classroom. We, were, we just saw that there was a problem. And that problem needed to be solved. And that required us to think about things differently. And we, we did. And that, that ultimately, uh, that, that different thinking was manifested in the Balanced Band program. So I, I want to start talking about recruitment because this is really where our research goes and, and, and what we were planning on talking about it at NASPA, that SIGEP can do all the right things, right? Like you can have this balanced man program and you can have those engaged volunteers who are fully bought in. You can do all the right things in Richmond, but at the end of the day, there are these barriers on campus that might prevent SIGEP chapters from becoming the chapters you would, would want them to become. And I think a lot about the pipeline of students who come to college knowing they want to be in a fraternity and the process by which that happens on a lot of different campuses. So as you all have looked around and thought about the pipeline and the process, where have you landed and, and what are those barriers that, that exist relative to that pipeline and that process that really prevent some of your chapters from being the chapter you would like them to be? Uh, yeah, I'm going to bounce around a little bit because there's there's so much here to talk about. There's, you know, we're, we we certainly look at the challenge, but we also really focus on the on the opportunity. And there's there's two big things that really jumped out at us in in 2016. Really, is is really when we started to talk about this concept of motivation to join and wanting to look at at that and the impact of that on our on our chapters and who they were bringing in how they were bringing those new members in and how those new members thereafter engaged in the experience 
And two things that we looked at, one, one was numbers, right? I mean, the data doesn't lie. And this is an area that had not been studied. The work that you guys are, are doing is really eye-opening. It's, it's really thoughtful and it's really unique. Um, and from that information that we've been able to capture, just as a teaser for the rest of this discussion, the data we have been able to capture is saying that the way that things are done now doesn't work. So we, we started to look at the data and we also started to look at what's going on in enrollment. We started to look at, of those young men who are going to college, how many of them are participating in the rush process that is kind of the, the university condoned and facilitated intake system on college campuses. You know, rush participation wasn't particularly impressive to us when you looked at it as a percentage of young men on college campuses. And, and that told us that we've got to rethink this. We've, we also looked at how quickly the world was moving and changing and compared that to how the rush system on college campuses has, has been managed. And, you know, we're, we're living in a time where things are changing so fast we're trying to get more more efficient or more effective and this vitally important part of the greek experience hasn't changed as the world changes around us this thing has remained almost entirely the same and if it has changed at all it, it likely has been in order to make things more efficient for the administration, which is often not necessarily in the best interest of the students. We have sacrificed the quality of the experience at the altar of efficiency, right? Like that, it, everything is about what's the most efficient process by which we can add 500 new members to these groups and the quality of those people, the way that experience socializes them into understanding what the experience ought to be be damned, right? Because this is the this is the easiest way for us to do this. And and the results I would argue have been catastrophic. And so so Brian, you referenced our research and let, you know let, let's talk to the listeners a little bit about what that data says. So we measure at Brian's suggestion. It's one of those things that it it made me mad that we hadn't thought to research it before Brian suggested it. But when we were talking to to SIGF about a potential partnership, Brian mentioned this, this notion of motivation to join, like wanting to know why people were interested in being in the fraternity. And so you know, we did some qualitative research. We did some focus groups. We, we consulted the, the literature that was out there. And so what we're able to now measure in our motivation to join scale are four different motivations. And, and I, I'm not going to suggest that these are the only four reasons that students would join a fraternity or sorority but they're certainly the four most salient ones when you talk to students about why they join. The first one is a social motivation, right? So this idea that you're joining a fraternity because you want to exploit the social benefits associated with being in a fraternity. There's an involvement and leadership motivation. So I see a fraternity as a good opportunity to get involved on campus to, to hone my leadership skills. Uh, there's a belonging motivation, uh, probably the most altruistic of the bunch in that it's, it's about I'm looking for a home away from home. I'm looking for a family. I'm looking for this place to fit in and belong. And then lastly, a kind of a social network, uh, this networking that, that being in a fraternity is those, those relationships will benefit me both during and after 
college. And so we started measuring this. And, and what we found with initially SIGEP and now in a second and a different way of measuring it through our relationship with Beta Theta Pi, where Beta is actually measuring motivation to join in a separate survey that students take literally the day they join, right? So they finish the recruitment process, they get entered into the database, and that immediately triggers an email, welcome to beta, they take a survey, and, and, and it includes that, that motivation to join scale. And, and with both organizations, the data couldn't be more clear that on those campuses that rely most heavily on either early in the semester fall formal recruitment or even worse summer recruitment so th those those campuses where students are, are recruited over the summer between graduating high school and starting in college those groups have a much higher motivation to join that's based on the social benefits which has a number of problematic correlates right and 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 SIGEP has a really sophisticated database, and so we're able at the chapter level to then correlate that data with things like number of alcohol-related incidents, number of risk management claims, uh, retention, grade point average, and, and what we see is overwhelmingly clear evidence that the campuses that are relying on formal and or summer recruitment are attracting the always joiners who are mostly interested in the social experience and that the outcome of that is more problems more alcohol use higher risk management claims more hazing incidents like all the bad stuff is a di direct result of this pipeline of students who join who, who the always joiners that we talk about so much in the industry uh and 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 that's disincentivizing chapters like SIGEP who want to offer a different, more meaningful experience from being able to do that because they're conditioned on their campus that we've got to get our numbers, we've got to get our men through this formal recruitment process. So how are you on those campuses, how are you all trying to help those chapters, I don't know, inoculating them against the pressure to just get those guys through formal recruitment, but to take time and go out and beat the bushes and find those guys who aren't interested in the stereotypical social fraternity experience, but would be interested in this very different thing that, that SIGEP is trying to offer. Yeah. So we're, we're starting with a, like most things, what resonates most is a what's in it for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just building on some of the other things that I've said, but, you know, Rush is in the model that we have right now. It, it's it's the only time in life I think that you'll hear, uh, you know, business development and and sales and recruitment is something you should do five days of the calendar year. <laughs> right. And so when when we talk to our our young men, I mean, we're talking to them about their personal development, their professional preparedness, as as well as what the data is telling us. Uh, about implications for chapter performance and longevity. And, and the what's in it for them is we've got to help you develop sales skills. We've got to help you develop communication skills. We've got to help you develop healthy, lifelong friendships. And that doesn't happen in five days. If, if you want to be good at those things and pre prepared to 
just knock the cover off the ball as a professional where business development and communication and collaboration and relationships happen every day of the year, mm -hmm. we're going to make you good at year round recruitment. And yes, you can participate in some of these things that are really, really tight and locked into to five days, but you know, we, we don't want you to rush to judgment. And we also want you to be very thoughtful about the messaging that you send and how you interact with people during that very structured, finite, limited, limited time with, with undergraduates. And so there's a, there's a large what's in it for me for, for young men as we talk about this. And we've started to reallocate a lot of our resources as a staff to sales skills development, uh, how to talk people through the value proposition, if you will, for Sigma Phi Epsilon, how to overcome some of the common objections that, that come up with joining fraternities in general and trying to position SIGEP as different, mm -hmm. not your stereotypical experience to get beyond those, those concerns. Um, and, and then continue to help people develop processes within their chapter where they're able to really work through a, a pipeline year, year round of reaching out to people, starting conversations, talking about what we're about, and then working them to a point where they feel comfortable joining. And, and we have seen a, a, a lot of success in the way that, that we're doing this. And um, you know, especially in the world where it is today with, with coronavirus, you know, we, we're, you know, we're able to continue to build on some of the messages that we've, we've been sending now for several years about year-round recruitment and staying in touch and building relationships and getting ready to, to extend bids, regardless of where you are, regardless of the circumstances, this is, this is what's in your best interest personally, and it's what's in the, the best interest of your chapter. Brian, let's take a quick break for a commercial. We will be right back with more from SIGUP CEO, Brian Warren. This seems like a great place to plug the Dyad Strategies P&M survey. In this episode, Brian and I both make a lot of references to Dyad's motivation to join scale, which is the measure at the heart of our P&M survey. Here's our chief research officer, Dr. Josh Schutz, explaining a little bit more about what that scale measures. We've been working with the recruitment process and uh, potential new members before they've even actually uh, joined or gone through that process, trying to diagnose those motivations and how that might or might not kind of match or align with the, the motivations that a chapter presents, right? So we can help them look at of the main four motivations, which are uh, the, de the derivation of some benefit to your social status, right? It makes you popular, uh, cool. It gives you the, the in crowd to be with. Uh, some people would say belonging would be a second one, the home away from home, the kind of, again, that connection to a group larger than yourself. Um, the, the third motivation being uh, leadership and involvement opportunities that we provide a great laboratory for fraternities and uh, for uh members to develop those skills. And then last but not least, kind of the, the networking and connection to alumni. So maybe through my involvement, I will um, be in contact with and develop friendships with folks who will help me get an internship, a job after, after college, right? Stuff like that. So um, we're able to now kind of look at uh, 
knowing the motivations that members have for, for why they want to join in the first place, it allows for some focused conversations at the chapter level about what are you doing to deliver on those. The same that we would have about brotherhood and sisterhood, right? Is what are you doing in the chapter that are aligned to the various schema of brotherhood? So what are you doing in your experience that deliver on those motivations that folks might have uh, for joining in the first place? When you conduct the PNM survey, we survey students immediately prior to the recruitment process. In addition to the motivation to join SCALE, we ask a number of other questions related to their prior experiences with hazing and alcohol, the things they were involved with in high school, their political ideology, all sorts of demographic stuff, including how supportive their parents are about their decision to join a fraternity or sorority. And here's the coolest part. We wait and analyze the data after the recruitment process is over. And we aggregate the data by chapter so you can see which chapters, for example, are recruiting the members with the highest social motivation or the members with the most experience with hazing in high school. We also compare those who joined to those who went through the rush process but didn't join to see if there are differences between those groups. And some of our campuses have even pulled a random sample of first-year students to have a benchmark to compare against. Pretty cool stuff. The PM survey can help you learn about who is joining compared to who isn't joining, why they are joining, and what they are bringing with them to the experience. Addressing challenges in your community has to start with addressing the pipeline of students joining your community, and there isn't a product on the market to help you understand that pipeline better than the Dyad Strategies PM survey. Find out more at www.dyadstrategies.com slash PM hyphen assessment. That's www.dyadstrategies.com slash PM hyphen assessment. Now, back to my conversation with Brian. It, it, it's fascinating to me as, as I hear you talk about this, the, the alignment that has to occur within an organization for, for that sort of thing to work, right? I mean, so to really emphasize year-round recruitment, that required deconstructing the pledging program like you all did, right? Because you can't have the emphasis on the pledge class and do year-round recruitment. And so the way you all are able to bring people in, take them through the different levels of initiation, it operates much more like a Masonic Lodge, right? And, and, and that there's, you go through these different rituals, but it's not as a pledge class. It's, it's each person on their own. And by de-emphasizing the pledge class, you you removed one of those barriers that would have stood in your way of trying to get chapters to really embrace this concept. And then, and then thinking about how we teach the chapters to strategically position the SIGEP experience in this really crowded marketplace and to help them understand the psychology of who joins and why they join. And in particular, how we recruit people sells, sends a lot of messages about what this experience is and more importantly, what it isn't, right? And so we can have people select in or select out of SIGET based on the conversations that we have with them, the questions that we ask them, that there's a real power in terms of psychology in how that recruitment process works related to who ultimately joins the organization. And, and you all have probably tapped into that better than any other organization, certainly that, that we work with and, and, and that I've seen in my, you know, 15 years or so, you know, working in this industry. And I think that's powerful. 
I appreciate the compliment. You've, you've, you've really nailed it with how we've had to, to reconstruct everything. And, um, you know, if, if you're going to acknowledge that uh, some of the other things that we've seen around the Balanced Man program really work, and then in order to fully execute the Balanced Man program, you need to be really thoughtful about recruitment. And then you acknowledge that the current framework or paradigm for recruitment doesn't facilitate that success. We get to a point where, where we are, and, um, and we've had to, to, to staff differently, allocate resources differently, communicate differently, structure our programs differently. It, it does require a total reconsideration of how you run your organization, how you interact with, with your members, and how you engage and collaborate with, with stakeholders, particularly campus stakeholders. We're, we're, we're doing a lot of work right now with AFLV and trying to get directly to campus leaders, the undergraduates, campus leaders, to share some of this conversation with them. And that has led to a, a lot of great discussion on, on college campuses about what we can do together to start rethinking this and bringing in uh, not, not just different students into the Greek experience, but more students into the Greek experience and benefiting from the things that, that we do well. Um, you can apply that to working with our partners at AFA's annual meeting and through, through that association. You know, this whole concept was gonna be done at the NASPA annual meeting. So we, we are trying to reach out and work with collaboratively our campus partners as well as our, our undergraduates to continue this conversation and share all the things that we've learned and how important it is to acknowledge some of, some of that and, and react to some of that. Yeah, I, I, I love this idea of it's not just about changing the pool of people who join, but growing the pool of people who join. And I, my theory is this, what we've seen in the last few years on the sorority side with our sorority data sets. And we've presented on this at AFA. If you've been to one of our sessions on, you know, problematic trends, and we'll probably do a podcast on this topic specifically soon. But what we've seen is over the last four years, measuring sisterhood, that four of the five schema of sisterhood have stayed relatively flat, stable. It's a huge data set coming from six national organizations and, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 campus projects every year that we've done that over the last four years, the prioritization of the social aspects of sisterhood have gone through the roof. That, 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 that sorority members increasingly, and especially between 2017 and 2018, was really where we saw the big blip on the radar, and it's continued since then, that there is higher and higher social prioritization of the experience. And my theory behind that is this. The reason we've seen it in the sororities and not the fraternities is that this happened in fraternities a long time ago, before we were gathering data, that, that you, because of all the bad things that have gone on, the deaths, the, the, the issues with alcohol use, sexual assault, what have you, the generational shift going from millennials to Gen Z, all these different things were happening at the same time. And I think about, I, think about, I, I was having lunch with my, my good friend, uh, whose mother to my godson, you know, great friend from college. She was SGA president. 
at UT, uh, and, and we were talking about my work and our research, and, and, and she was not a big partier, right? Like, went out and had maybe a couple of drinks on her 21st birthday, but, like, didn't go out, didn't party, didn't socialize. She wanted to be in a sorority because that was her springboard to involvement on campus. And she was a great student and very serious uh, about her academic pursuits and her leadership and involvement. And, and, and in looking at our data, what it suggests is that basically someone like her would be much less likely to join a sorority today than they would have 20 years ago, right? That, that it's not that the people who are joining are more social. It's that the people who are joining for other reasons who see a sorority maybe as a good opportunity for leadership and involvement and, and other things are now less likely to see the sorority as the best avenue for that. There's, there's more competition on campus. So there's other ways that they can get involved and get plugged in without being in a sorority. And so those really serious minded young women who, who want to be great students and who care a lot about leadership and involvement and community engagement are seeing sororities as a less and less attractive option. Uh, and the reason we've not seen that trend in the fraternity data is because it happened a long time ago. And, and so we've got all these socially motivated people and less of the people who are more serious minded, who I think for years were able to keep chapters somewhat on the straight and narrow, right? That you had that core group of guys in each chapter that uh, were able to keep things somewhat under control. And once those guys were no longer there, or at least made up a, a, an ever shrinking minority in those chapters, that's when you started to see the proliferation of all the challenges that we've seen in the last five, 10 years, the really brutal social dominance hazing. Uh, you know, I think about just you know, the, the increase in deaths that are just senseless and meaningless, the, the issues with sexual assault, the issues with alcohol use, you name it, the problems have gotten worse, and I think they've gotten worse because those responsible students who were always there to kind of keep things somewhat under control are less and less likely to even be joining our groups now. And, and to me, that's maybe maybe the most problematic thing right now, that, that we don't have those young men and young women providing the maturity and level-headed decision-making that our organizations need, frankly, in order to survive. And the way we've done recruitment, this formal process, doesn't do anything to address that. It doesn't do anything to go out and find those students and convince them that, hey, this is still a good option for you. Uh, it, it's just recruiting those people who are very well aware of what those negative stereotypes are and are choosing to join in spite of that or worse yet, are choosing to join because of that, that that's the experience they're looking for. Um, to me, that's the biggest problem right now. And, and, and the way we recruit people has to change in order for us to address that. I, 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 don't, I don't see any other way around it. Totally agree with you. We're not, we're not gonna change unless this part can change first. And you're, you're absolutely right too that there's a, some, I'll say some, some fraternities are not helping us right now because we're recruiting with porn stars on social media and in videos, <laughs> right? That, that is not going to facilitate the type of change that we want to see behaviorally. And, and to your other point, where we say often in SIGEP, where there's a void, someone's going to fill it. 
And the, the positive aspects of fraternity that you were referencing from years ago, if fraternities aren't filling that today, universities and, and really quality student affairs departments are, are going to roll out things like first-year interest groups. They're going to roll out learning communities. They're going to do out-of-the-classroom education and, and help people develop the skill sets that they're going to need after college. Right. And, and so as we allow, the longer we allow this as fraternities to continue, the less relevant we will become. That's we right. Have- Je- Jeremiah yeah. Shin talks about this all the time. And I think he's exactly right that for years we were the only game in town. Right. Uh, you know, fraternities and sororities were the only groups that were really providing all those leadership opportunities and, and opportunities for engagement. But in the last 10, 15 years, Student affairs departments have got wise and you've got learning communities, you've got service learning programs, you've got all sorts of freshman engagement initiatives. There's a lot of things that students who want to get involved and engaged can do that have nothing to do with fraternity. And so when I'm that serious minded student who's looking for engagement and leadership and involvement, 20 years ago, a fraternity might have been the best bet, but now there's a lot of other options out there. That's right. It's, 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 it's critical. And, and, and I think you bring up another interesting point and, and you and I have talked about this a lot. I, I talk about it with a lot of the folks that I'm connected to in the industry. We really are seeing a um, delineation of philosophies in the fraternity industry, right? That, that you've got groups that have left the NIC for various reasons. You referenced, you know, Porn videos at conventions, or not porn videos, but porn stars making videos. I think everyone knows what we're talking about there. So you've got that on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got groups like SIGEP, DU, Beta, to name a few. There are others out there that really want to be trusted partners with college campuses and want to provide a meaningful co-curricular experience, who want to go against the stereotype and, and I think one of the critical issues in, in the fraternity and sorority industry right now, particularly for campus-based professionals, is for years we've operated under this assumption that we should more or less treat everyone the same. But when you're dealing with different groups who have starkly different philosophies on what partnership with higher education ought to look like, I don't think we can just treat the Kappa Sigmas of the world the same as we treat the SIGEPs of the world, and that's, I'm not saying that just because you're a client. I, I look at this through the lens of we can't encourage bad behavior by treating everyone the same. And if that's what we do, then you're going to see a lot more groups go the route of Kappa Sigma than you see going the route of SIGEP, DU, Beta, and others. And I think that's a, that's a catastrophic step if we take it, that, that we've got to come to terms with the fact that different groups are providing or at least attempting to provide a drastically different experience. And if we don't recognize that in terms of how we treat those groups relative to other groups, then we're just rewarding bad behavior. That's right. I mean, look, if, if we uh, want to apply some additional business uh, philosophies to higher ed, they've got limited resources they've got groups that they would recognize as, as good partners. And yet we still are seeing a a lot of resource allocation to groups that are problematic instead of supporting the groups that want to make the change. And I, I don't say that as an indictment. I just, you know, it's, it is what it is. And there's a lot of things that we're going to need to, to reconsider. 
because of the point that we've, we've just raised, the, the longer this behavior uh, continues, the worse it's going to get. We got to change fast. And one of the places to start is with how we recruit. Who we bring into the organization, how we bring them into, into the organization, the conversations, the expectations that we set because that will fundamentally change the motivation that people have for joining our organizations. So in an ideal world, what does that look like? If you could wave a magic wand and change the way that campuses are approaching this, what, what would recruitment look like in an ideal world? So one, I'd end rush tomorrow. That is, and just start. Rush just goes away. No more formal rush. It goes away because it stands in the way of some really important philosophies when it comes to relationship building and understanding someone's motivation for joining your organization. You just, you need more time. You got to get beyond the superficial layer of, of exchange and really understand why someone wants to be uh, a SIGEP, why someone's interested in this. And, and, and conversely, I also have to know uh, more about them and I need the time to, to ask them good questions um, and help them understand what we're about. Uh, I would be delivering a lot more sales education and healthy relationship education to students in the Greek community. Uh, understanding what a healthy relationship looks like and what it takes to maintain and strengthen a healthy relationship is a really important topic that doesn't get enough attention. And if we, we look at how we're in, investing in some of these things, I, I, I'm appalled sometimes when I see how much money is being thrown at the rush process on both the fraternity and the sorority side. If you reallocate that money to bringing a professor in to teach these concepts around marketing, around sales, around relationships and communication, I, th I think we, we start to change the conversation in a really important and fundamental way that allows us to implement this year-round recruitment concept in, in a way that alleviates a lot of the concerns uh, on, from administrators on what would happen if there's not this really tight structure in place. Well, we're going to totally shift that paradigm from a controlling philosophy to an empowering philosophy. We're going to teach, we're going to educate, we're going to empower based on these concepts that we want the fraternity system to represent. And if you do that, you totally change the conversation around deferred recruitment, I think, because yes. the, the, the argument now is, well, we've got to have this really controlling structured process by which students join because it's efficient, but we know there's all these bad outcomes associated with joining right at the beginning. So let's just, let's just delay that process a semester or a year without changing the problems that are underlying that process. But if you embrace a different philosophy, like you're discussing, you go from selling this product and, and, and having the structured process that only appeals to a certain group of people whose motivations may not be what we want them to be, to teaching chapters to go out and find the people that they want to invite to join the organization, to build relationships with them, to strategically position themselves within this market. And, 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 and I think if you do that, if you delay that process, give chapters that time to go out and find those people, what you will then see is this, um, 
I think, increased diversity within uh, any campus community in terms of what a good and a bad fraternity looks like. The, the whole process of formal structured recruitment that really came from the Panhellenic side, the goal of that was to reduce variance, to, to basically have a system in which all chapters look more or less the same, and it's worked really well in doing that. The problem is that the, what that looks like on most campuses now is a really shitty fraternity experience, right? Like we've, everyone's gravitated towards the mean and the mean is not a good mean. And, and so we totally need to blow that structure up. And, and when, if we did that, I think everyone would embrace it eventually because it totally changes the conversation about the need to defer recruitment to second semester or second year. And all you're doing is saying, we're not deferring anything. We're just going to slow down the process by which this occurs and give chapters an opportunity to go out and find the type of people who they want to recruit and bring them into the organization in the way that makes the most sense to them. Will you still have groups that continue to market the stereotypical experience and recruit with alcohol? Of course you will. And you can address that. But what you do is give those groups who want to be different the opportunity to build and create a totally different experience and then go out and recruit and find those students who want to be part of that experience. And to me, it just, it seems so obvious, but this is such a difficult conversation to have, especially with campus-based folks, because we're so married to this idea of a formal structured process. And, and, and I think it's causing so many of our problems. Change is hard. And we're talking about really significant change that really shakes up a lot of positions on on college campuses in the Greek life department. But with with change and, and this type of change, I think we we all need to take a step back and again look look at data and understand that when we change, we will see the things that you're finding in your research. When we recruit year round, those chapters see fewer incidents they see better grades, they see lower alcohol consumption based on frequency and volume. They see less dependency on the social experience and more attractiveness to the sense of belonging and accountability and networking or development. We see less tolerance for hazing and we see more, a more inclusive experience, less homogenous chapters, more inclusivity, more diversity, all of these things are what we're striving for in higher education. And if we're willing to change and address this very fundamental part of fraternity, we're going to see a much better, a much brighter future for fraternities and sororities. And I think at the end of the day, that's, uh, that's the beauty of this, right? It's, it's, why, it's why I'm disappointed that we couldn't do this session at NASPA, maybe next year, but the data don't lie. They're, they're so compelling. And not only the data that you just talk about, when we look at SIGEP nationally and we compare SIGEP to just the average fraternity out there, it's clear that what they're doing is working. There's no question that what they're doing is working. They have lower tolerance for hazing. Their members drink considerably less in terms of frequency and volume. Their members have a stronger sense of accountability and higher on openness to diversity. Like these, these things didn't just happen by accident. They have provided a fundamentally different experience and the results speak for themselves. So 
people love to talk about being data driven. It, it's, it's one of the big buzzwords out there in our world right now. And, and student affairs folks love their buzzwords. Don't just talk about being data driven. If, if you've got data staring you in the face that says doing it this way is much better than doing it this other way, then, then, then we need to start having the conversations to, to make those changes. And, and I agree completely change is hard, but when the answers are staring you in the face, it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, you got to do it. Well, Brian, you, you and I could talk forever. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely do this again sometime. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh, y'all take care of yourselves up there in Richmond, all right? Stay safe. Wash your hands. <laughs> Always. So this conversation with Brian really has me thinking a lot about the need for bold experimentation in our industry. We can't keep doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. We all know that's the definition of insanity. And if we know there are challenges and issues associated with the pipeline of students joining our groups, why wouldn't we change the process by which they join especially if we have strong indicators that would suggest that changing that process would drastically change that pipeline and fundamentally alter the fraternity experience on our college campuses. So we need people who are willing to try different things. We, we need campuses who are willing to partner with groups like SIGEP who really want to try and do things different and build some synergy around national organizations working with like-minded campuses to promote a fundamentally different fraternity experience. And we need to measure the impact of those things. We need to study the impact of those things. We can't continue to make decisions in this industry around anecdotes and, and around emotions and the way that things make us feel. We need data, we need research. That's one of the reasons that we started Dyad Strategies. So really enjoyed this conversation with Brian. I hope you did too. I hope you got a lot from it. I did too, and can't wait to continue this conversation with him and with others about the way we recruit students and how that's having such a profound impact on the fraternity and sorority experience. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, a production of Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information about Dyad Strategies, Visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com. <laughs>